to take a breather because I want to read some things and I try to be respectful when I talk about my religious doubts. So here we go. I have, I'm reading a social media thing that does have a lot of facts. So here we go. How you got your Bible? Constantine and his bishops voted a bunch of books as the word of God, 325 AD. Don't just believe me, go look it up. They pick and choose what they want in the Bible, then burn all other pre-Christian documents that prove their religion was fictitious, 391 AD. In order to make religion popular, they kill everyone who don't who doesn't agree with the new religion and make laws prohibiting any public talk about religion. It is illegal to disagree with the church 380 AD. But today Christians running around with the Bible don't know that what they are believing in was purposely planned out for them to be believed by men. Wow. Wow. Wow, that, uh, yeah. It says, this hurts. Many rank and file Christians still believe the Bible is a direct communication from God to man. I know I used to believe it when I was a Christian, and at one point I did too. And from several conversations with many sincere Christians, I know this is currently true for many believers. Once it is, it is proven to our God-given reason that the Bible is strictly a man-made collection of mythology, the mind moves yet another shackle of quote-unquote revelation, and is soon on its way to full freedom and progress. It's best to know the Bible was not handed to mankind by God, nor was it dictated to human stenographers by God. It has nothing to do with God. In actuality, the Bible was voted to be the word of God by a group of men during the 4th century. According to Professor John Cross in the Biblical Studies at DePaul University, the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, 274 to 337 CE, who was the first Roman Emperor to convert to Christianity, needed a single canon to be agreed upon by the Christian leaders to help unify the remains of the Roman Empire. Until this time, the various Christian leaders could not decide which books would be considered holy, and thus the Word of God, and which ones would be excluded, not considered the Word of God. Emperor Constantine, who was Roman Emperor from 306 CE to his death in 337 CE, used what motivates many to action, money. He offered the various church leaders money to agree upon a single canon that would be used by all Christians as the Word of God. The church leaders gathered together at the Council of Nicaea and voted the Word of God into existence. Constantine ordered and financed 50 parchment copies of the New Holy Scriptures. It seems with the financial element added to the picture, the church fathers were able to overcome their differences and finally agree which quote-unquote holy books would stay and which would go. The final version of the Christian Bible was not voted on at the Council of Nicaea per se. The church leaders didn't finish quote-unquote editing the holy scriptures until the Council of Trent when the Catholic Church pronounced the canon closed. However, it seems the real proof of However, it seems the real approving editor of the Bible is not God. Wow. Mm. Wow. Wow. Then it says horse. 
Egyptian god worshipped since 2200 BC. Born of a virgin, had 12 disciples, healed the sick and injured, resurrected from the dead, as our translates to Lazarus, crucified and resurrected after three days, known as the Lamb, the Way, and the Light. Doesn't seem so special and unique now, doesn't it? Does it? Is Christmas a Saturnic ritual? Is it possible that Christmas is both a geocentric and Saturnic ritual? Santa Claus sounds suspiciously like Satan's claws, and Santa is an anagram for Satan. Santa, Satan, Saturn, Saturday. Did you know Yeshua was born nowhere near December 25th? But that this date was the birthday of the sun god so Invictus or Mithras? Did you know December 25th was the concluding day of the pagan winter festival called the Saturnalia in honor of the god Saturn, the hidden one? People are super sensitive when it comes to Christmas, and that's understandable. Much more has been thought that the holiday marks the birth of the Christian Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's simply wrong. Jesus wasn't white, and he damn sure was a Capricorn. Most never reflect on why they believe what they believe or do what they do. We live in a world filled with customs that few ever seek to understand their origins. The pagan celebration of Saturn. The Roman god of agriculture at times began as a single day, but by the late Republic, 131 BC, it had expanded to a week-long festival beginning December 17th. This is the root of what today's Christians celebrate as Christmas. Queen Mary II can carry 4,209 people, but Noah's Ark carried 7.7 million animal species. Apart from both sexes of all the species of animals in the world, fitted into the ship, also on board were Noah, his wife, and three sons and their wives, and the loving sky daddy God hit the reset button with the flood that allegedly killed every single human and animal that wasn't on board, not sparing babies genocide slash infanticide. Furthermore, miraculously, those humans on the ship upon disembarking from the ship after the devastation of the flood had assuaged. Those eight humans had genetic transmutations were able to produce all the races we have now. Because logically, they were the only humans left. So they gave birth to Asians, Europeans, Africans, and the lot. Wow. Wow. Ooh. Killing his own son for our sins instead of killing Satan. I swear the story is not clear. Ooh. Since all negativity is attributed to Satan and demons, other fallen angels, has anyone ever wondered where the alleged negative spirit of a rebellion conspiracy to overthrow God emanate from? Since there was no Satan before Satan became Satan, 
So who made Satan commit the sin that earned him banishment from heaven? Hmm. And then it says, I'm gonna make sure. It says, There have been nearly 3,000 gods so far, but only yours actually exist. The others are silly, made up nonsense, but not yours. Yours is real. Then it says, No condom, no possum or two, 700 wives, 200 concubines with his three children. King Solomon's story, no clear. Religionists don't actually love their gods, they're simply afraid of his punishment. Hmm. Hmm. I'll read part of this. It says Basically, the, the person in religion is against science, which tests, itemizes steps and processes, has constants and consistencies, has proofs and fact checkers. Hmm. But then it talks about So Abraham heard a voice telling him to kill his son and he was stopped last minute by another voice telling him not to. This happened today. Wouldn't we be seriously worried about the mental health of Abraham? Why is this story praised and taught to children? Hmm. Why do religions have different gods but the same Satan? H.L. Mickens says, Morality is doing right no matter what you are told. Religion is doing what you are told no matter what is right. Hmm, I wonder if you take away heaven and hell from the concept of religion, will the people who practice religion, are they truly decent people? Uh, or, or, any, or are they capable of being monsters? I have questions. This is a, I'm going to put this in a question. From what I'm seeing, in, in terms of the majority of science, the science in general, for many people, I have not seen science prove faith, and I have not seen faith be proven. So that makes me question without faith. There is no manipulation. 
Without manipulation, there is no fear. And without fear, there is no power. These are my sincere doubts. The Bible only exists in the Bible, and everyone in the Bible never owned a Bible. Wait, okay, it says, 4,000 years before Cain killed Abel was the story of Seth who killed his brother Asar. Believe what you want, but at least know the truth, he says. The story was that long time ago. The god Osiris came to Egypt to rule as king. He brought the Egyptian people new laws and taught them how to farm well and live peacefully. Osiris was a very wise and powerful king and was loved and respected by its people. Unfortunately, his brother Seth was very jealous of his brother's power in Egypt and, and began to form a plan to kill Osiris and take over his throne. Late one night, Seth tiptoed into Osiris' bedroom, careful to not wake up Osiris or his queen, the goddess Isis. Seth measured Osiris' body from top to bottom, from side to side. The next morning, Seth took the measurements to a carpenter who made a beautiful wooden chest decorated with bright paint and sheets of gold. That night, Seth threw a huge party and invited Osiris as a guest of honor. That night was spent feasting, singing, dancing, and playing games. For the final game, Seth brought out the huge wooden chest. He announced that the first person to fit perfectly into the chest would be allowed to keep it. One by one, each of Seth's friends climbed into the chest. Unsurprisingly, no one was able to fit into the chest, which was made perfectly for Osiris. Finally, Seth and his friends convinced Osiris to try his luck with the chest. Osiris stepped into the chest and lay down. The chest fit him perfectly, just as Seth had planned. Just as Osiris lay down, Seth slammed the lid and sealed it shut. Seth and his friends took the chest down to the Nile River and dumped it in, knowing that Osiris would never be able to survive. When Osiris heard the news of her husband's death, she was extremely upset. She rushed to the riverbank and after several days of searching, found the wooden chest. Isis opened it and removed the dead body of her beloved Osiris. Crying, Isis hit Osiris' body in the river grass. She didn't want Seth to find Osiris' corpse before it could perform the proper rituals that would allow him to pass through the afterlife. Later that night, Seth returns to the Nile to make sure Osiris' body had washed away. I wonder, has the Bible, when it comes to its stories, is there any kind of plagiarism attached to the Bible? It says, I hate cancel culture. I'm just reading up. I'm, I'm reading someone's thoughts. I hate cancel culture. Imagine God canceling because you did or said the wrong thing. The very first Bible story is God canceling two people over fruit or over an apple as it's alleged to have been in terms of fruit. Let me read this. During the Tower of Babel incident, which dates back earlier, then the Bible goes all the way back to the Sumerian tablets. Enlil, who is also known as Yahweh in the modern-day Bible, he comes back and he witnesses the human beings all working together on one accord building. 
a tower to the heavens. This arranges him. He then destroys the tower. He realizes that mankind consent to do anything they want to come together and work in peace and unity. So he divides people. He changes the language. And he also says, my seed will not abide a man forever. His year shall be 120. That's when the genetic modification occurred under the current man that we are today where our life spans were shortened. So what they did was they took out chromosome number two, fused it together and put a telomore cap on each end. Modern science let me come back to that. Let me come back to it. So I'm going to be quiet for a few minutes so we can get back because you know everything else. I'll read the whole thing again. Hold on. During the Tower of Babel, during the Tower of Babel, it's which dates back, hold on, give me one more chance, one more time, from the top. During the Tower of Babel incident, which dates back earlier than the Bible, it goes all the way back to the Sumerian tablets. In Lil, who's also known as Yahweh in the modern day Bible, he comes back and he witnesses the human beings all working together on one accord building, a tower to the heavens, as it rapes him, he then destroys the tower, and he realizes that mankind can set the heart to do anything they want if they come together and work in peace and unity. So he divides people, he changes their language, and he also says, My seed will not abide a man forever. His year shall be once or twenty. That's when the genetic modification occurred under the current man that we are today, where our life spans were short. So what they did was they took out chromosome number two, fused it together, and put a telomere cap on each end. Modern science has now confirmed this day know that it's not by evolution <sighs> hold on for a minute let me try one more time because they go really fast let me go one more again during the Tower of Babel incident which dates back earlier than the Bible goes all the way back to the Sumerian tablets and Lil who's also known as Yahweh in the modern day Bible, he comes back and he witnesses the human beings all working together, one accord building a tower to the heavens. This enrages him. He then destroys the tower and he realizes that mankind can set the heart to do anything they want if they come together and work in peace and unity. So he divides people, he changes their language, and he also says, My seed will not abide in man forever. His year shall be 120. That's when the genetic modification occurred under the current man that we are today, where our life spans were shortened so what they did was they took out chromosome number two fused it together and put a telomere cap on each end modern science has now confirmed this they know that it's not by evolution but this happened but they can't figure out how it happened and according to modern science it happened about 200,000 years ago ironically the same exact time the Sumerian tablets stated happened wow I was able to get it right this time that is really wild I'm just now reading it to make sure that I got everything outright but that is just shocking to me 
it feels like a religion is so unoriginal. It, it appears that way. I'm just reading what, what I'm reading again. It's still stunning to me. Man. I am really naturally secular because This is shocking. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay, that was that was the hardest to read, as you know, because sometimes when Instagram shows you things, like it's fact-based, and it shows you things, sometimes it goes really fast, so I had to read fast, but if y'all replay this, you can actually pause it and go, okay, I got what he said. Um... I've always had a question. My question would be um, the whole reality. I don't want to play what this person said because I'm not sure if I'll get sued or not. Because, you know. You know, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll let this person speak. We're cool, so... As long as I say this is Afro-humanist, as long as I say her name, then as long as you give credit, I should be good. So let's go back, and I'll let her ask, yeah, ask this question. I only play one video. Here we go. I'm glad y'all were able to hear that. Because. Okay, one, okay, another one. One more.
I'm glad you're able to hear that too. From time to time, I'm gonna do things like this, like play videos so people can understand that religious doubts are way more prevalent when it comes to not just non-believers, even believers have them. She's just very vocal about them. I, I am very acquainted with this person. I've talked to this person many times. Then it gets worse, anti-masturbation cross. Safely train your children to keep their hands off their dangerous sin zone. Papoose cross and armor mobilizer work together to safely secure a self-raping child. I shit you not. This is a actual thing from actual website, www.stopmasturbationnow.org. Adjustable catfish straps with Velcro. Adjustable head straps incorporated into backboard. Optional on mobilizing accessory slides underboard for firm spread eagle position. Tell you, man, people make religion a mental illness. People are doing that. And they like to do it. And I have no idea why. I like this, though. It says, I'm reading a cartoon. Well, I believe in God. Which one? Man created so many of them. Hmm. And then it says, men never do evil so completely cheerfully when they do it from religious conviction by Blas Pas Blaise Pascal. Wow. Um, if it can be destroyed by the truth, it can be destroyed by the truth, Carl Sagan. Then, Tandy Newton says, from about the age of five, I was aware that I didn't fit. I was the black atheist kid in the all-white Catholic school run by nuns. I was an anomaly. Wow. Okay, vaccinated by the Lord. Jesus came inside me. Assholes live forever. See, people are making religion and mental illness. People are doing this. People, I tell you, people are doing this. Wow. And I'm learning that even in very religious contents like Africa, you can actually plead guilty to blasphemy if you're a non-religious person and be sentenced for years in prison. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, it, yes. They use imprisonment as a way of persecuting non-believers in a lot of contents. This is just awful. And then... This is a, I want to read this. Um, you can become a Christian on a new jerk reaction everyone celebrates. You need no good reason to convert. But when you leave, the same people now expect you to have expertise in philosophy, history, biology, psychology, archaeology, anthropology, etc. Even though in the religion there is a history for many people within religion of anti-philosophy, anti-history, anti-biology, anti-psychology, anti-archaeology, anti-anthropology, anti-intellectualism, intellectual laziness, spiritual laziness, physical laziness, anti-science, anti-mathematics, anti-inventions, 
anti-medicine, anti-surgeries, anti-doctors, anti-hospitals, anti-emergency rooms. And the biggest anti-vaccinators have been religionists. Just keep that in mind. Wow. Who wrote slash witnessed the story of creation when there was no one on earth? That is a valuable question. Hmm. It says, not Jesus telling his disciples to go and buy swords. Can you imagine the savior of the universe asking disciples to buy weapons? Why? If he was God, why couldn't he protect them without them needing to buy weapons? Is Jesus promoting violence? These things just don't make any sense whatsoever. Hmm. Hmm. I just love to do this type of thinking. It says, if Jesus looked like a black person, would white conservatives still be Christians? The answer is no. This ought to wake up people, especially black people. Our ancestors will be turning in their graves knowing that the religion that was used as a tool for enslaving them is now the religion of the people. People are choosing to follow the follow the religion without doing their homework of studying the history of the religion. People who brought Christianity to Africa lied to us. And then, um, wow, they seek. I'm reading. I'm reading a lot of Instagram. They secretly and openly pray some form of harm and misfortune befalls the non-believers or teach them a lesson to come running to God. That's how vile some religious people are. Wow. Wow. This this is frightening. This is really frightening. Okay, pastors prayer on Instagram, how's the good prayer? Those that are wishing your death that will want to kill you will die. You die, you will attend their funeral and see them put the ground in Jesus' name. First, the grammar is awful. And more importantly, awful is what's in someone's heart like that. Disgusting. This is... This is very... This is all frightening. A Christian woman who, like wearing high heel shoes, is married to the world. She may be in a church, but her soul is in the world. You'll never see a godly chaste and muscle Christian lady wearing high heel shoes. Wow. Talk about mental slavery at one of its worst levels, what I say. Okay, my question is, why are there missing books of the Bible? I just don't understand. All these editions, you got denominational editions of the Bible, all these translations, 
all these versions. Why, 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 why? Why can't the Bible be crystal clear? And why do you need all these human indoctrinated views of this is how scripture really is? I don't get it. Okay. It says, your Jesus asked the disciples to buy weapons, so I think everyone needs to see what church to religion believe. Thanks. So now I've got to read the Bible conferences and understand why Jesus told the disciples to arm themselves with weapons. If Jesus knew that if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, why did he ask the disciples to buy swords in the first place? Is he not setting them up for death by the sword, seeing that his disciples live by the sword? If Jesus was all knowing, he would have known that the swords he asked him to buy would be to chop someone's ear off, so why ask him to buy it in the first place? People need to stop and start asking critical questions of the Bible. There are things that don't make sense in the book, and slowly but surely, we will expose them. Wow. Well, okay. I'm finished with those types of readings. Um... Okay, so let's get down to the nitty gritty. It says Bruce Gerenser, Christianity just doesn't make sense. Bruce Gerenser. It says my journey towards deconversion started slowly around 2008. I have been dis- mine had mine is this year. I've done episodes before 2020 left Christianity, but I'm really leaving it. Um, actually, this week, this after this episode, I'm officially done with religion. I, I kid you not. It says I've been discussing and teaching about tithing with a friend of mine. We had some disagreements about the subject. I went to a very in-depth study about tithing. Long story short, what I've been taught various churches where I taught as well did mind with what the Bible says that say about tithing. I started wondering what else does the Bible say and not say regarding different topics. The more I read the Bible without the church lenses and learned to think critically, the less and less it made sense. I would say my deconversion probably took about eight years total, so much is still happening. I would say my deconversion is fully complete after I finish this episode. Because I gotta take a one-month break from religion on onto this episode. On the, on the side of things, Christianity really doesn't make much sense anymore, at least not to me. That's how I feel. Starting off the bat with the creation story, God creates everything, ending with man and woman as the last thing created. He puts them in utopia, creates a tree that they are not supposed to eat from, and puts it right in the middle of the garden. Then a talking snake convinces Eve, who convinces Adam to eat the fruit from it, thus doing mankind to sin and sickness and death and the eviction of the garden. Surely with God being all-knowing, he knew that's what would happen, right? So why do it? Then there's the part about them realizing they're naked and God has to make clothes for them. Soon after, Eve gives birth to Cain and Abel. Before I even finish that, why make pregnancy complications the standard for a woman just because the man failed to be the leader of the relationship and why does the man have charge over the woman how come they can't have co-leadership why does one submit to the other how come they can't just submit to each other and both be the leaders that's it and they both take the bullet they both protect the household 
I understand. And why this Eve is why is Eve associated with evening or darkness? Isn't that misogynistic towards women? How come no one blames Adam for the whole eating the fruit thing? Why is it just Eve? And why are women considered awful people? Because when y'all started all the sin in the work and we had thousands later, it's fucked up to get fucked up, and it's fucked up to stay fucked up. More importantly, it's fucked up to stay fucked up, okay? And it says, Cain kills Abel, God gets pissed, and sends him on his way to the land of Nod. There apparently are people here because Cain gets married and had kids. Where the hell do these people come from? A while later, Genesis talks about the sons of God who start hooking up with human women. There's much speculation on who the sons of God were. But anyway, the women apparently gave birth to giants. Then God decided that all the humans were wicked to the bone and regretted making them. What? Again, did he not know this was going to happen? So he decides to kill all the humans and animals on the earth except knowing his family just start over. Looking past the fact that he's committing genocide, he looks at how he does it. He could have done a Thanos and snapped his fingers, wiped out the humans and animals. Quick and painless, but that's not how he chooses to do it. He's going to drown all the humans and animals. It's not only a slow death, but a terrifying one as well. Can you imagine the pain and terror that all the humans and animals went through? This is very controversial, but sometimes I feel this way. If you know the life I live, you understand. That's a sick motherfucker right there. God is good, my ass. Sometimes I feel that way. Sometimes I do. I just... Why make all... Why make creation that you know apparently love pissing you off and offending you? I understand then there are all the people and animals that God has people kill later on because they wouldn't worship the right God. Well, tell me who's the genuine God? Who's the truthful God? Which gods are quote-unquote false? Why have false gods? Why have a disingenuous deities? I don't get it. Skipping ahead to the New Testament, you can do a simple Google search to find all the inconsistencies in the Gospels throughout the rest of the New Testament, so I'm going to go into those. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? Do the believers that decided to put a commune together and sell all their stuff and put it in a joint account? Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they sold the land for and God killed them for it. God will kill someone for lying, but he allows thousands of children to be molested by clergy around the world on a regular basis. What the fuck? The God you read about in the Bible is the God of today's real life doesn't line up at all. The Bible tells about Jesus and the apostles healing people all the time. The accounts of quote healing that I've run into, I'm skeptical. How about some folks at ALS getting healed or MC Slim's growing back? That would get me back to drinking the Kool-Aid again. All the stories and accounts in the Bible just doesn't make sense to me anymore. The fact there are at least 200 Christian denominations in the U.S. and something like 40,000 worldwide doesn't make sense. Surely if the Bible is the quote-unquote word of God, God could communicate the same truth to all Christians, right? And what about the idea of literal hell? Even though God has quite a long history of killing people, the Bible states in many places that he is good and his mercy is forever. Huh? That's interesting. Supposedly, God is love in 1 Corinthians chapter 18 describes what this love looks like. In case you are not familiar with the verses, they go something like this. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, does not proud, does not dishonor others, does not self-seeking. 
It's not easily angered. Keep the record of wrongs. Keep the record of wrongs. Oh, really? Adam and Eve, the genocide of the human race, the slaughter of multiple groups of people, and the doctrine of hell all say otherwise. And if a person studies the history of the Bible, how can it, how it came to be the historical center, the accuracy of the Bible, lack thereof, and so on? It doesn't make sense. This post only scratches the surface of what no longer makes sense to me about religion, specifically Christianity. And I agree with Bruce Gorenzi when he says, I'm not 100% convinced that there is no deity slash God of any kind. I don't think that can be proven either way. He says that I would say... Maybe science in my lifetime, or once I'm dead and gone, and I'm not I'm still, I want to go back to existence, I want to live as long as I can. Um, maybe it'll be in another lifetime when I'm not here. I don't know. But I'm pretty damn sure there's one God or many. That God, that's not the God of the Bible, Christianity, or any other holy books that have existed. I think part of the reason which this is that. They are human beings as ways of trying to describe some things and something that is that is that are just indescribable. It, it, you know, indescribable beyond measure. It's immeasurable, indescribable, you know. I still really like this quote by Barry Taylor wrote Match Base C D C God is named the blank and we throw over the mystery to give it shape. Hmm. Yeah. I think there could be a deity or God. I would say a God that makes sense because so many, so much vagueness, so much ambiguity, so many contradictions, so many inconsistencies, so much backwardness, so much tipsy turvy roller coaster zigzagging. That's what I see in religious texts and in these quote unquote holy books. And then, Mike, I have a question. Why? Don't people talk about the fact that apparently God had a wife. Did God have a wife? God says that he did. God had a wife, Ashira, whom the Book of Kings suggests was worshipped alongside Yahweh in his temple in Israel, according to an Oxford scholar. Ashra's, Ashura's connection to Yahweh, according to Francesca Stavra Kapilu is spelled out in the Bible in the 8th century BC inscription on pottery found in the Sinai Desert at a site called Kantela Ashred. Five by Jennifer Theodos. God had a wife, Ashura, whom the Book of Kings suggests was worshipped alongside Yahweh in the temple in according to an Oxford scholar. In 1967, Raphael Patai was the first historian to mention that the ancient Israelites worship of Yahweh and Ashura. The theory has gained new promise because of the research of Francesca Stravra. Kapulu, who began her work at Oxford and is now a senior lecturer in the Department of Theology and Religion at the University of Exeter. Information presented in Stravra's Kapulu's books, lectures, and journal papers has become the basis of a three-part documentary series now airing in Europe, where she describes the Yahweh Ashura connection. 
You might know him as Yahweh, Allah, or God, but on this fact, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, the people that great Abraham religious are, are, are grieved. There's only one of him, like Stravrock Kapil, in a statement released to the British media. He's a solitary figure, a single universal creator, not one God among many, or so we would like to um, after years of research specializing in history and religion of Israel, however, I have come to a colorful and what could seem to some uncomfortable conclusion that God had a wife. Drafa Kaplilu based their theory on ancient texts, amulets, and figurines on earth, primarily an ancient Canaanite coastal city called Yudharit, now modern-day Syria. All these artifacts show that Asher was a powerful fertility goddess. Um, the inscription is a petition for blessing, she says. Crucially, the inscription asks for a blessing from Yahweh and his Asherah. Here was evidence that presented Yahweh and Asherah as a divine pair. And now a handful of similar inscriptions have since been found, all of which help to strengthen the case that the God of the Bible once had a wife. Also significant, strive for a Kapu believes that the Bible's admission that the goddess Asherah was worshiping Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. The Book of Kings were told that a statue of Asherah was housed in the temple and that female temple personnel wove ritual textiles for her. J. Edward Wright, president of both the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies and the Albright Institute for Archaeological Research, told Discovery News that he agreed several Hebrew scriptures mentioned Yahweh and his Asherah. Asher was not entirely aired out of the Bible it's now editors he added. Traces of her remain and based on those traces are God's evidence and reference to her in texts from nations bordering Israel and Judah, we can reconstruct her role in the religion of the southern Levant. Asherah, known across the ancient Near East by various other names such as Astarte and As and Istar, was an important deity, one who was both mighty and nurtured, right continued. Many English translations prefer to translate Asher as sacred tree, Wright said. This seems to be in part driven by a modern desire, clearly inspired by the biblical narratives to hide Asherah, finding veil once again. Mentions of the goddess Asherah in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament are rare and have been heavily edited by the ancient authors who gathered the text together. Aaron Brody, director of the Bade Museum and associate professor of Bible archaeology at the Pacific School of Religion, said, Ashura, as a tree symbol, is said, even said to have been chopped down and burned outside the temple and acts of certain rulers who were trying to purify the cult and focus on the worship of the single male god Yahweh. He added, the ancient Israelites are polytheists. Hmm. Brody told Discovery News with only a small minority worshiping Yahweh long before the circumvention of society in 60 BC. In that year, an elite community within Jesus. Dea was exiled to Babylon, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. This probably said led to a more universal vision of strict monotheism. One God known as Judah for all the nations. Wow. That makes me think the polytheism still influences the concept of the Holy Trinity that was instituted by Constantine and the people who put the Bible together, not Jesus himself. Not Yahweh self, not Yahweh's self, not itself. Wow, wow. 
Is God a solitary figure, a single universal creator? That's a question mark for me. I don't know. Is is there a God among many? I don't know. That's a question mark for me. So, I just like to free myself with these things, these doubts. And that's what talking about really does for me. It's very, very helpful. It says, he was born, lived, and died as a Jew. Jesus' identity cannot be understood apart from his Jewishness. So this is by Harold W. Atlas, the Lillian Claus Professor of New Testament Bill Divinity School, pbs.org. What was the dominant religious influence on Jesus? Jesus was certainly subject to the influence of the traditions of Israel. There's no doubt about that, but in what form those traditions came to Galilee at the beginning of the first century is somewhat unclear. We certainly would have known of the temple in Jerusalem, probably as traditions purport, would have gone up to Jerusalem for the nature pilgrimage festivals. He would have known of the rituals of the temple, their atoning significance. He would have celebrated Passover, respectful his family, would have known of the hopes and burden of Passover for divine deliverance. He probably was aware of the growing Pharisaic movement, which preached a notion of, of purity that was available to all Jews, not simply those who were officiating at the temple cult. He certainly would have known Jewish scripture, and we can see in some of his parables how he plays on images from scripture. For instance, the great cedar of Lebanon from Ezekiel probably plays a role in his description of the mustard seed which becomes a tree, and there's probably an element of parody there. So his relationship with the scriptural heritage is a complex one, but certainly is an important one in its formation. This is now by Shay I.D. Cohen, Samuel Unger, leader, professor of Judaic studies and professor of religious studies, Brown University. Was Jesus Jewish, and if he was, would, how would that have influenced his experience as a young man growing up in Galilee? Was Jesus a Jew? Of course Jesus was a Jew. He was born of a Jewish mother in Galilee, a Jewish part of the world. All of his friends, socials, colleagues, disciples, all of them were Jews. He regularly worshipped in Jewish communal worship, what we call synagogues. He preached from Jewish texts from the Bible. He celebrated the Jewish festivals. He went on pilgrimage to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem where he was under the authority of priests. He lived, was born, lived, died, taught as a Jew. It's obvious to any casual reader of the gospel text. What's striking is not so much that he was a Jew, but that the gospels make no pretense that he wasn't. The gospels have no sense yet that Jesus was anything other than a Jew. The gospels don't even have a sense that he came to found a new religion idea completely foreign to all the gospel texts and completely foreign to Paul the Apostle. That is an idea which comes only about only later. So to say that he was a Jew is saying a truism, is simply stating an idea that is so obvious in the face of it, one wonders if it even needs to be said. But of course, it does need to be said because we all know what happens later in the story when it turns out that Christianity becomes something other than Judaism. As a result, Jesus' retrospect is seen not as a Jew, but as something else, as a founder of Christianity. But of course, he was a Jew. And then Paula Fredrickskin. William Goodwin Ariella Professor of Appreciation of Scripture, Dallas University. Was Jesus Jewish? Uh, why is it so important? Why is it so important to us? And why would it have colored his perceptions? What astonishes me when I read stories about Jesus in the New Testament is how completely embedded he is in this first century. Jewish world of religious practice and piety. 
We tend to get distracted by the major plot line in the Gospels because we're waiting for the story to develop up to the crucifixion. But within that story, and the stories that are told by the evangelists that fills in the gap between the Galilee and Jerusalem, Jesus is presented continuously as going into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He is presented as going up to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage holidays, specifically in John, for any number of pilgrimage holidays in the Synoptic Gospels. Most importantly, for Passover, Jerusalem, that Passover is not the sort of place you want to be unless you really commit to doing an awful lot of ritual activity with tremendous historical resonance. What we've learned from the gospel story is not that Jesus is not Jewish, quite the opposite. He's completely embedded in the Judaism of his time. What we learn from the gospel is that he's not a member of one of the groups whose identifying characteristics Josephus gave to us. He's not a Sadducee, he's not a Pharisee, he's always arguing with the Pharisees, he's not in the scene, he's not an insurrectionist. And the fact that he's arguing with other people, maybe members of these other groups, just simply signifies that he's a Jew because that's what these Jews all did with each other, argue with each other all the time. So he's not a zealot and he's not a teacher of the law, he's not a scribe either. Wow. Okay. Ooh, yes, I'm so going to read this. Jesus' rabbi, scholar Jaroslav Pelican, examines the change in perceptions of Jesus' role as a Jewish rabbi and teacher. Jaroslav Pelican illustrated Jesus through the century. Yale University Press, 1997, pages 9-20 through the rabbi. The study of the place of Jesus in the history of human culture must begin with the New Testament, on which all subsequent representations have been based. But the presentation of Jesus in the New Testament is itself a, re a, re a representation resembling a set of paintings more than a photograph. In the decades between the time of the ministry of Jesus and the composition of the various Gospels, the memory of what Jesus had said and done circulated in the form of an oral tradition. The Apostle Paul, writing to the congregation at Corinth in about AD 55, 20 years or so after the life of Jesus, reminded them that during his visit a few years before, probably in the early 50s, he had orally delivered to you as the first importance what I also received still earlier. Thus, perhaps in the 40s, concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 7, and the institution of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 26. Chronologically and even logically, therefore, there was a tr tradition of the church before there was a New Testament or a new book of the New Testament. By the time the materials of the oral tradition found their way into written form, they had passed through the life and experience of the church, which laid claim to the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. It was to the action of that spirit that Christians attribute the composition of the books of the New Testament, as they began to call it, and before that of the Old Testament, as they began to describe the Hebrew Bible. And it's obvious and yet to judge by the tragedies of later history, not at all obvious that Jesus was a Jew. So the first attempts to understand his message took place in the context of Judaism. The New Testament was written in Greek, but the language Jesus and the disciples usually spoke seems to have been Aramaic a Semitic tongue related to Hebrew, but not identical with it. Aramaic words and phrases are scattered throughout the Gospels and other early Christian books, reflecting the language in which various sayings and liturgical formulas had been repeated before the, tradition, before the transition to Greek became complete. These include some such familiar words as Hosanna, as well as the cry of dereliction of Jesus on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Mark, Mark chapter 15, Verse 34, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which in Hebrew of Psalm 22 was Eli, Eli, Lama, Azaphtani. Alongside Emmanuel, God with us, the Hebrew title given to the child in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, and applied by Matthew, 1, chapter 1, verse 23. 
But Jesus could not use to address him except with such apostrophes as the medieval antiphon, Veni, 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 name that forms the that forms the epigraph to this chapter. Or Aramaic words appear as titles for Jesus, Rabbi or Teacher, Amen or Prophet, Messiah or Christ, and Mark or Lord. The most neutral and least controversial is probably Rabbi, along with the related Rabbani. Except two passages, the Gospels apply the Aramaic word only to Jesus, and included the title Teacher or Master, Didaskalos in Greek. But the tenant as a translation of that Aramaic name, it seems safe to say that it was a rabbi that Jesus was known and addressed. Yet the gospel seems to accentuate the difference rather than the similarities between Jesus and the other rabbis. As scholarly study of the Judaism of his time has progressed, however, both the similarities and differences have become clearer. Luke tells us chapter 4, verse 6 to 30, that after his baptism and temptation by the devil, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, and his custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Following the customary rabbinical pattern, he took up a scroll of the Hebrew Bible, read it, presumably provided an Aramaic translation, he had paraphrased the text, and it turned to him. Words he read were from Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1 through 2, Spirit was that has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But instead of doing what a rabbi would normally do, apply the text to his by comparing and contrasting other interpretations, declared, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Although the initial reaction to this audacious declaration was said to be wonderment at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, his further explanation produce the opposite reaction everyone's filled with wrath. Beyond the confrontation between Jesus as rabbi and the representatives of the rabbinical, rabbinical tradition, the affinities are nevertheless clearly discernible in the forms in which his teachings appear in the Gospels. One of the most familiar is the question and answer with the question often phrased as a teaser. A woman had seven husbands in series nine in parallel. Whose wife will she be in the life to come? Matthew chapter 22, verses 23-33. Is it lawful for a devout Jew to pay taxes to Roman authorities? Matthew chapter 22, verse 15-22. Who must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark chapter 10, verse 17-22. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 18, verses 1-6. The one who puts the question acts as a straight man, setting up the opportunity for Rabbi Jesus to drive on the point, often by standing the question on his head. To the writers of the New Testament, but the most typical form of the teachings of Jesus was a parable. He said nothing to them without a parable. Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. But the Greek word parable was taken from the Septuagint, the Jewish translation of their Bible in Greek. Thus here too, the evangelist's accounts of Jesus as a teller of parables makes sense only in the setting of his Jewish background. Interpreting his parables on the basis of that setting alters conventional explanations of his comparisons between the kingdom of God and incidents from human life. Thus, the point of the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 32, better called the parable of the elder brother, it is in the closing words of the father to the elder brother, who stands for the people of Israel. Son, you're always with me, all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to make merry and be glad for this is your for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and found the historic covenant between god and israel was permanent and it was into this covenant that other peoples too were now being introduced the oscillation described in the role of jesus rabbi attributes him a new and unique 
authority make additional titles necessary, one such as prophet, and as in the affirmation of Psalm Sunday, Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Probably the most intri intriguing version of it is once again in Aramaic, Rev Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The word Amen was the form of affirmation in a prayer, as in the farewell change of Moses, the people of Israel, where each verse concludes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 14 to 26. All the people shall say Amen. In the New Testament, in extension, the meaning of Amen becomes evident in the Sermon on the Mount. Amen, legal hymen. Truly, I say to you, some 75 times throughout the four Gospels, Amen introduces an authoritative pronouncement by Jesus. As one who had the authority to make such pronouncements, Jesus was the prophet. The word prophet here means chiefly not one who foretells, oh, the sayings of Jesus do contain many predictions, but one who is authorized to speak on behalf of another and to tell forth. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quote is asserting Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill them. But truly, amen, I say to you, till heaven earth pass away, not a loita, uh, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The affirmation of the permanent validity of the law of Moses, followed by a series of specific quotations from the law, each introduced with the formula. We have heard that it was said to the men of old, each such quotation is then followed by a commentary opening with a magisterial formula. But I say to you, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, 21 through 48. The commentary is an intensification of the commandment to include not only its outward observance, but the inward spirit and motivation of the heart. All these commentaries are an elaboration of the warning, but that the righteous of the Father Jesus must exceed that of those who follow other doctrines of the law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And this the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount confirms the special status of Jesus as not only rabbi but prophet, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 8 through 1. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were started in teaching, for he taught them as one with authority, not as, and not as their scribes. When they came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Then there come several miracle stories. The New Testament does not attribute the power of performing miracles only to Jesus and his followers, Matthew chapter 12, verse 27, but it does cite the miracles as Substantiation of his standing as rabbi prophet. The identification of Jesus was a means both confirming his continuity with the prophets of Israel and of asserting superiority to them as the prophet who's coming there predicted and to the authority they had been prepared to yield. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13 to 22. God tells Moses and him and the people that he will raise up for them a prophet like me from among you to whom the people are to pay heed in its biblical context that is the authorization of Joshua as the legitimate successor of Moses but in the New Testament with the Christian writers the prophet to come is taken to be Jesus Joshua yes Jesus name means Joshua he is portrayed as the one prophet in whom the teaching of Moses was fulfilled and yet succeeded the one rabbi who both satisfied the law of Moses and transcended it for the law was given through Jesus I'm sorry for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ John chapter 1 verse 17 describes such a revelation of grace and truth the categories of rabbi and prophet necessary but not sufficient therefore later anti-muslim christian apologists would find islam's identification of jesus as a great prophet and forerunner to muhammad to be inadequate and hence inaccurate so that the potential of the figure of jesus the prophet as a meaning ground between christian and muslim has never been fully realized the rabbi and prophet yielded in uh 
two other categories. Each came black words express the Aramaic word and then its Greek translation, Messiah, the Aramaic form of Messiah, translated into Greek as Ho Christos, Christ anointed one. John chapter 1, verse 41, John chapter 4, verse 25, and Marana, our Lord, in the liturgical form of Maranatha, our Lord come, translated into Greek as Ho Kairos, Kairos, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. The future belongs to these titles and to, and to the identification of him as the Son of God and second person of the Trinity. But in the process of establishing those Christ and Lord as well as being the rabbi and prophet often lost much of their Semitic content to the Christian disciples of the first century. The conception of Jesus rabbi was self-evident to the Christian disciples of the second century was embarrassing to the Christian disciples of the third century and beyond it was obscure. The beginnings of this de-Judaization of Christianity basically are visible already from the New Testament. With Paul's decision to turn to disciples, Acts chapter 13, verse 46, after having begun his preaching in the synagogues and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the Christian movement increasingly became Gentile rather than Jewish in its constituency and outlook. In that setting, the Jewish elements of the life of Jesus had to be explained to Gentile readers, for example, John chapter 2, verse 6. The Acts of the Apostles can be read as a tale of two chapters. In its first chapter, his first chapter with Jesus and the disciples after the resurrection is set in Jerusalem. But his last chapter reaches its climax with the final voyage of the Apostle Paul in a simple but pulse quickening sentence. And so we came to Rome. Recently, scholars have not only put the picture of Jesus back to the setting of first century Judaism, they've also rediscovered that Jewishness in the New Testament, particularly of Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 9, verse 11, is a description of the struggle of the relationship between church and synagogue, including with the prediction and the promise that all Israel will be saved. No. It should be noted, converted to Christianity, but saved because of Paul's words, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Rome chapter 11, verse 26 through 29. This reading of the mind of Paul in Romans gives special significance to his many references in the name of Jesus Christ there, from descending from, from David according to the flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the first chapter to the preaching of Jesus Christ, which is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations in the final sentence. Here Jesus Christ is, as Paul says of himself elsewhere. <coughs> That's a legitimate sneeze. Of the people of Israel, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the very issue of universality, supposedly distinction between Paul and Judaism, was that Paul would make necessary that Jesus to be a Jew, for only through the Jewishness of Jesus could the covenant of God with Israel, the gracious gifts of God, um, and his radical calling become available to all people in the whole world, also to the Gentiles who were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, namely the people of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. No one could consider the topic of Jesus' rabbi as one subsequent relations between the people to Jesus belong. And the people belong to Jesus. The relate, that relation runs like a red line through much of the history of culture. And after the events of the 20th century, we have the unique responsibility to be aware of it as we study the history of the images of Jesus throughout the centuries. The question is easy to ask and it is to answer. And it's easier to avoid than it is to ask at all. But ask it, we must. Would there have been such anti Semitism? Would there have been so many pogroms? Pogroms, would there have been in Auschwitz if every Christian church and every Christian home that focused devotion on the images of Mary, not only as mother of God and queen of heaven, but also as the Jewish maiden and new Marianne, not icons of Christ, not only as the cosmic Christ, but also rabbis, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, come to ransom the Catholic Israel and the Catholic humanity. This was from the Illustrated Jesus Theory of the Centuries by Gerald Slav Alcan, Young University Press, 1997. So, the goal of me reading to you that was no proselytizing, no converting, no persuading, no convincing, no evangelizing, no great commission, no being heavy on religion, no being heavy on faith, no being heavy on spirituality, not trying to make you practice Christianity, not trying to make you practice religion, but I do like, as a human rights person, we have to be good at history, so we have to explain certain things. What you do with what is being explained is totally up to you, but at the same time, I have to give you, you know, the facts of what people think about very touchy matters, you know? So, my interpretation of Jesus is much different than religious people's. Because I think that Jesus is history, honestly. Um, would be okay with a statement I'm about to read to you right now. This is by Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian. It's published in 1927. It says, Fear, the foundation of religion. Religion is based, I think, primarily mainly upon fear. It is partly the terror of the unknown and partly, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty. Therefore, it is no wonder if cruelty and religion have gone hand in hand. It is because fear is at the base of two it is because fear is at the basis of those two things. In this world we can now begin a little to understand things and a little to master them by help of science, which has forced its way, which has forced its way step by step against the Christian religion, against the churches, against the opposition of all the old priesthood. Science can help us to get over this crazy fear in which mankind has lived for so many generations. Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us, no longer to look around for imaginary supports no longer to invent allies in the sky but let's look to our own efforts here below to make this world a fit place to live in instead of the sort of place that the church from all these centuries has needed hmm invent allies in the sky imaginary supports are those things real? I don't know I'm not sure would supernaturalism of any kind or miracles of any kind be nice? I would hope so but um, I don't know.
has truly helped me to embrace the unknown, embrace mystery. Embrace uncertainty. To embrace what I don't understand now, but later. And what I will never understand. That is what helps me out. So much. And, um, I think I'll conclude with this, but before I do, I want to say that I do not look at God as patriarchal. I don't even assign any gender to God, even though I'm much more comfortable with, you know, people saying that God is a woman. Again, I don't um, put gender on God, so I just say God is it, God is spirit. I don't describe, again, I do not subscribe to patriarchy, but let me close out. Not, 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 not yet, because I have more thoughts. So this time I'm gonna talk from the heart, and then give you a three-minute read, and then close. Let's go. So I look, I notice with Christianity there is a lot of vitriol, a lot of anger, um, a lot of. abuse um a lot of when people have constructive criticism for a church it's often met with the religious version of no you are but but what am I in the form of what have you done challenging a record because they hate that you're constructively challenging their record on what they've done. And you have attack mode, you got defense mode, you have argumentative. They're better at fighting each other, arguing with each other than actually saving souls and winning souls to Jesus. And then I noticed that they're better at fighting, arguing with each other, and exiling each other, and excommunicating each other, and actually uh, taking stands against systemic injustice. And I noticed in that world that there's this shame of being quote unquote a sinner. They're excellent at guilt, blame, shame, but they're bad at wholeness and being holistic. Um, when you have perfectionism and the persecution complex mix, you get very mentally ill individuals. God is not asking people to be flawless. The only self pressure that's being implemented is themselves. God's not doing it, they're doing it. Then the whole persecution uh, lie. I mean, first of all, you're not in China or Saudi Arabia or Nigeria. It's not like if you don't practice what they practice, they can legally execute you. You're not being threatened, you're not being harmed, you're not being beaten up, you're not being killed. So just because a communion Bill Maher makes, you know, he's an atheist, but we call himself a, 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 a atheist. 
Um, that's because he he makes his honest statements on religion in the form of jokes and in the form of just direct statements of telling jokes. That's not persecution. That's just Bill Maher exercising his free speech right. So free speech is only okay if believers practice it, but when it comes to non-believers, it's somehow wrong. And that's wrong in and of itself to even feel that way. And then I've noticed that in the world of religion, there is a lot of factions, you know, a lot of, you know, um, teen methods, teen Baptists, they talk shit about each other, they diss each other. Why not have all the biblical ways of honoring Jesus and call it a day? Why does that have to be, no, you're not doing right, you're not doing right. Well, we should be open to all things praising Jesus. If you're clearly praising Jesus, then we should be doing it. As a Christian, you aren't supposed to think that way. This is strange. And then I noticed that in that world, being a Christian is something that they hate. They want Jesus to do all the work for them. They don't want to grow learning all the Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of not meeting Jesus. No, they don't believe Jesus at all. In Christian church, it is okay to have entertaining worship and live like a non-believer the rest of the week. And it's okay to even be a non-believer in church. There's more non-believers in church than believers in church. Hmm. And then I noticed about that world of religion. It's okay to be illiterate. It's okay to be spiritually literate, biblically literate, academically literate, especially in the deep American South, the Bible Belt, the United States. It's okay to have no health care, no quality health care, bad education, or no education, and it's okay to vote for people who don't give a fuck about Jesus, but to vote for people who are Jesus hijackers. Why would I want to practice a religion called Christianity when that religion is easily hijackable and Jesus is clearly easily hijackable too? I can't. And then when it comes to uh, the concepts of uh, original sin, there is original sin to excuse you. Well, we're all born in sin, shaped iniquity. Every time it's convenient for them, every time they're caught in the lie, every time they're caught in the bullshit, that's what they do. It could be covering up the rape of children in church or outside the church. They'll still do that shit. Then I noticed another thing. Um, this mentality uh, no, uh, you got it. I'm going to be, Jesus has to be Christian for me. I won't be Christian for him. And. God has to experience all the persecution for him. God has to experience all the rejection for him. I want to experience persecution and rejection for God. And Jesus does all the work for me. I don't do the work for him. They think helping means doing all the work for. And they think it's other people's job to fix their own brokenness, not their own job to fix their own brokenness, even though, according to the Bible, Jesus is helping them. They reject all of their beliefs. They don't believe any of their beliefs. It's okay to be undisciplined in church. It's okay to be a hypocrite in church. It's okay to be a viper in church. It's okay to be an antichrist in church. It's okay to be a liar in 
church. It's okay to be a backstabber in church. No It's okay to go bare minimum in terms of niceness in church, but it's not okay to go above and beyond loving people in the church. So apparently Satan's hate is stronger than God's love in the church, too. It's just very, very sad um, how in church, destructive criticism and actually not staying in failure, but growing and um, and who you are in God is apparently acceptable in church. And that was another thing. They don't handle criticism and failure well. They like to stay in criticism and to stay in failure. They don't actually want to grow. And that's all been completely frightening. I, 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 I just have to say um, I just feel like like we are the creators, we are the gods. It says, an unbiased and open-minded observation of all religion. Ancient, medieval, or modern will illustrate that they are in fact selling the same product in different packages. Wow. It's so sad when a lot of people, as Christians says, they just like to be nameless empty. They'll say that to non you know, players, and I just go, you know, their new meaning is life and truth. Life deciding is they search for answers using science and reason. And they and they just don't live. They just live without being fearful. Uh, the mysteries that no one in this life can answer. And cognitive distance is I want to read something that was said. I'm going to have to go a little bit more. Because it's very, 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 like, beautifully, uh, truly.
And God that has to threaten me with hell to be confessed to me to recognize that this God is not the blood of man made scarecrow. That's an interesting point. Cognitive dissonance. Sometimes people go to court believe that it's very strong when we are presented with evidence that works against that belief, no evidence cannot be accepted. So it creates a feeling that's extremely uncomfortable called cognitive dissonance. Because it's so important to protect the court belief, they will rationalize in order to deny anything that doesn't fit in with the core belief. Cognitive dissonance. This is why people get upset when their beliefs are challenged. A mental conflict occurs when beliefs are contradicted by new information. This conflict activates areas of the brain involved in personal identity and emotional response to threats. The brain's alarms go off when a person feels threatened on a deeply personal emotional level, causing them to shut down and discard any rational evidence that contradicts what they previously regarded as truth. Cognitive distance means the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. I wonder. Do most religious folks suffer from it? Hmm. Um, I would say that your religious beliefs are not immune to criticism. They're beliefs in your head based on where you were born, how you were raised, and influenced you. And as, I would say people have to educate themselves. So please, for everyone's sake, educate themselves. Are your religious beliefs are are you willing to respect the non-religious views of others even if again they're not religious beliefs that's what I'm asking religious people so it's okay so you want non-religious or non-christian people to respect your beliefs but you're not willing to respect the convictions non-religious people. So in that case, this is my message to those types of religious people. Simply have religious people not thinking it's true or how to respect I say that to those types of religious people because they go, well, simply having non-religious beliefs does not make them true or how to respect them. That's what non-religious people say. That's what, no, not non-religious people say. That's what some religious people say to non-religious people. And are your beliefs really sacred? If you don't critically think them, I don't know. I would say no. No. Are your are your convictions tr- true? Can you make them true? That's what I gotta ask ourselves. H.L. Mickens says, Morality is doing right no matter what you're told. Religion is doing what you're told no matter what is right. Take away heaven and hell from the Constitution and find out the deep practice of religion. Are they actually good people? Or could they be possible? I don't know. Feels like they won't. The moment we realize that the faith healer on TV is wearing glasses, passing by, my people say if a man offers you the clothes, first have to check what he's wearing. You can't be wearing rags for promising to buy me Gucci. Then it says, killing his own son for our sins instead of killing Satan. I swear the story is not clear. 
I wish I could apologize for how hard I've been laughing because it seems laughing, but my goodness. Alright, now that I'm done reading, reading, reading with all that, let's close out. The principles of secular humanism. Many of my friends are feel somewhat religious despite being free thinkers who the benefits of projecting ideologies that are untrue, but they wonder what we feel before. They wonder what you're supposed to believe and what you truly shut all superstition. How do you go on? What do you base your life on? What gives you meaning? Why even get up in the morning? Because they lack answers to these questions, they cling to a nerfed and sanitized version of the faith. They're injected with these children, pouncing their psychohumanism. Well, here's an alternative. Follow the principle of the base of psychohumanism, life sense, that I find the extraordinary ability to capture how I, among other free thinkers, I know through the world. The principle of psychohumanism. Here's the list from psychohumanism.org. I'm going to say I. I am committed to the application of reason and science to the understanding of the universe and to the solving of human problems. I deplore efforts to denigrate human intelligence, to seek to explain the world through natural terms, to look outside nature for salvation. I believe that scientific discovery and technology can, can contribute to the betterment of human life. I believe in an open and pluralistic society, and that democracy is the best guarantee of protecting human rights from authoritarian elites and repressive majorities. I am committed to the principle of the separation of church and state. I call to debate the arts of negotiation and compromise as a means of resolving differences and achieving mutual understanding. I am concerned with securing justice and fairness in society and with eliminating discrimination and intolerance. I believe in supporting the disadvantaged and handicapped so that they'll be able to help themselves. I attempt to transcend di divisive Parochial loyalties based on race, religion, gender, nationality, creed, class, sexual orientation, or ethnicity, and strive to work together for the common good of humanity. I want to protect and enhance the earth to preserve it for future generations and to avoid inflicting needless suffering on other species. I believe in enjoying life here and now and in developing our creative talents to their fullest. I believe in the cultivation of moral excellence. I respect the right to privacy. Mature adults should be allowed to fulfill their aspirations to express their sexual preferences to exercise reproductive freedom, to exercise sexual freedom, to have access to comprehensive and informed health care, and to die with dignity. I believe in the common moral decencies, altruism, integrity, honesty, truthfulness, and responsibility. Humanist ethics is amenable to critical, rational guidance. The norms and standards that we discover together, moral principles are tested by the consequences. I am deeply concerned with the moral education of our children. We want to nourish reason and compassion. I am engaged by the arts, no less than by the sciences. I am a citizen of the universe, and I am excited by discoveries still to be made in the cosmos. I am skeptical of untested claims to knowledge, and I am open to novel ideas and seek new departures, and I think I affirm humanism as a realistic alternative to theologies of despair and ideologies of violence and as a source of rich personal significance and genuine satisfaction in the service of others. I believe in optimism rather than pessimism, hope rather than despair, learning in the place of dogma, truth instead of ignorance, joy rather than guilt or sin. Tolerance in the place of fear, love instead of hatred, compassion over selfishness, beauty instead of ugliness, and reason rather than blind faith or irrationality. I, 
I believe in the fullest realization of the best and noblest that we are capable of as human beings. So, here's a shorter list of tenets from Wikipedia Secularism article. So, I am for the need to test beliefs. A conviction that dogmas, ideologies, and traditions, whether religious, political, or social, must be weighed and tested by each individual not and not simply accepted on faith. I am for reason, evidence, scientific method. A commitment to the use of critical reason, factual evidence, and scientific methods of inquiry rather than faith mysticism in seeking solutions to human problems and answers to important human questions. I am for the fulfillment, growth, and creativity. A primary concern with fulfillment, growth, and creativity for both individual and humankind in general. I am for the search for truth, the constant search for objective truth with the understanding that new knowledge and experience constantly alter our imperfect perception of it. I am for this life, the concern for this life, committed to making it meaningful through better understanding of ourselves, our history, our intellectual, our artistic achievements, and the outlooks of those who differ from us. I am for ethics, except for viable individual social and political principles of ethical conduct, judging them on their ability to enhance human well-being and individual responsibility. I am for building a better world, a conviction that with reason and open exchange of ideas, goodwill, and tolerance, progress can be made in building a better world for ourselves and our children. So those officially are all of my views on religion all out without a doubt from my mouth. joking when I said I was completing but without the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 disciples of Israel I say um of the whole question of why is it all male centric and the 12 tribes are the foundational stones upon which the nation of Israel has been built okay uh, but why was it all male-centric? Why were all the disciples male? I find that to be problematic and quite misogynistic, if you ask me. And then, you know, Then it says he appointed 70 disciples. Hmm. But they always talk about the 12, but never talk about the 70. Hmm. And most of the disciples are Jews. But how come he couldn't appoint, you know, like six women and six men? And how come he didn't have any LGBTQI plus people as part of his disciples? How come there are no non-binary, gender non-conforming people as part of his disciples and apostles? I, I don't understand those things. I'm about to seriously wrap up now.